This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 275th episode, we have a bunch of news, including some new paleopathologies and some new dinosaurs, or at least new dinosaur material from Australia. And we have dinosaur of the day, Dicreosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we always like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanaugh, the Tolbert family, Remy Rodriguez, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Avery, Albertosaurus, Trev, Ayrton and Everett, Greg, Jared Copeland, Leah, and William. And Leah and William both just joined, so thank you very much. Which means that they've joined in time to get the new art, which will be coming out as soon as we get another 23 patrons, because that's how far away we are. And our hint as a reminder is it's inspired from Planet Earth 2. Yeah, I can't remember. We might have spoiled more of it than that. I think we said it was bird-related, but that doesn't really help since that's like a third of the stuff on planet Earth. Well, definitely dinosaur-related. Yep. Yeah, so again, thank you to everybody, and we're excited to share this new art with you. Hopefully you like it. I'm not an artist, but I am happy with how it turned out. I think you're a pretty good artist. <laughs> I think you <laughs> undersell you. it. You're not a <laughs> professional paleo artist, but I think this illustration came out very nicely. Thank you. So yeah, if you want that or any of our other rewards, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, our first article and story is about two dinosaur bones from Australia. We always noticing Australia stories now that we've been there. <laughs> it gives us better context about what goes on as well. So these specifically are being classified as the first ever Noahsaurid remains from Australia. And... I should mention that the article is written by Tom Browman and others and published in Scientific Reports. Noasaurids are an interesting group of animals. They include Mashikasaurus, which we talked about back in episode 127, which has crazy splayed out teeth on its lower jaw. Super weird. And sometimes the Noasaurids include the group Lemusaurus, depending on who you ask, which was in our news in episode 111. And the reason we were talking about it in the news is there was a study that showed that it started life with teeth and then shed them as an adult into a toothless beak situation, which is super weird. So these animals have very strange teeth. <laughs> and as a quick reminder, there are several other dinosaur groups already known from Australia. In New South Wales, we've talked about their sauropods and chylosaurs and the larger predator Australovenator, as I like to say it. 
Also known as Australovenator. Yeah, that's not about them. <laughs> and then from Victoria, we've talked a lot mostly about their small ornithopods, which are those ornithischians that were probably herbivorous, really tiny, mostly from places like Dinosaur Cove and all that. And yeah, they're really small. These noosaurids are similar in size, but are theropods, so obviously quite different. And they're considered close relatives to abelosaurids with those little tiny arms, but these have more normal sized arms, just really weird heads instead. So among these two bones, one of them is actually a new bone, but one of them is a reassigned bone. So the new bone is a neck vertebra from Lightning Ridge that resembles a noosaurus. Apparently the vertebra has a special little cave-in part and a ridge on it that you don't see anywhere else. So they're assuming that this bone is a vertebra from the same animal, which is the best you can do. That's why we have holotypes. And since it's from Lightning Ridge, it does have a little bit of opalized action going. Ooh. Yeah, it's got a little spot of green opal kind of in the middle of the bone. I was wondering if they were tempted to break it open to see how much more opal was in there. But fortunately, they didn't. They realized it was a unique fossil and brought it into the Lightning Ridge Opal Center. And it's now in their collections. They dated the bone to about 100 million years ago. Basically, everything in Lightning Ridge is around that date, so that's not surprising. And then the other bone is an ankle bone from Victoria that was previously put in some more general categories, but now they've specified it down into Norosauridae. So that one, though, is dated about 125 million years ago, so it's about 25 million years earlier. And obviously, if we had a more complete skeleton than just one bone of each, they would probably get separate genus names. But they didn't bother naming genera based on these because it's just one bone. And what are you going to do with that? It's super hard to find. Like, say you find a skull somewhere, you're not going to be able to compare it to the single vertebra and see if it's the same genus. So you might as well just wait till you find something more complete to name it. We don't know too much about noosaurids in general. They're not very well known. But some of their teeth have ridges that are often associated with cutting through meat. And it's been proposed that Mashikasaurus used its protruding, super weird teeth to grasp small prey like insects. It seems weird that you'd have teeth sticking out of your mouth and you'd use it like tweezers or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's really weird. It's, it's almost like the abelosaurid arms where they're just so strange and you wonder why, why would you have that? And it's, yeah, they're closely related. So I guess they're just in the weirdo group of the <laughs> theropod family tree. So phylogenetically, both of the bones ended up near Mashikasaurus, but the phylogenetic analysis isn't really robust because they only have one bone of each. So it's likely that in the future this will all change and hopefully we'll find more noosaurids generally and then it'll really fill out this family tree and we'll learn a lot more about the differences and different little groups in there rather than we basically have a pretty complete Mashikasaurus and not a whole lot else to go on at this point. But on the bright side, this does extend the known range of noosaurids. Previously, they've been found in India, Argentina, and Madagascar. So another way to put that is it was in all of Gondwana except for Antarctica and Australia. And now with the addition of these Australian bones, it's all of Gondwana except for Antarctica. And it takes a long time to find stuff in Antarctica. Yep, so. they could be there. Yeah. I mean, odds are if they're in Australia, they went through Antarctica. I think that was mostly how they were connected in the Cretaceous. So yeah, most likely. There's probably other opalized ones too. Yeah. 
And I think it's cool too that not only do they span all of Gondwana, but they also span most, if not all, of the Cretaceous, maybe even a little bit of the Jurassic. So this was a group of dinosaurs that were all over the place, both in time and space. Yeah, that happened a lot. Yeah, but usually, I mean, we have so little of them. Mm -hmm. I guess they're small dinosaurs, they have to be in the right preservational environment and all that. But I really hope we find out more about them. I want to know what's up with their weird teeth and then whether or not Lemusaurus with its lack of teeth as an adult is actually in this group and why that happened. It's a lot of questions here in this part of the dinosaur family tree. And our next article is something new that we have in common with dinosaurs. And by we, I mean people. It's an article by Bruce Rothschild and others published in Scientific Reports. In this case, I'm talking about a paleopathology. So unfortunately, the thing that we have in common with dinosaurs is cancer. Oof. Yeah, specifically LCH, known as Langerhans cell histiocytosis, which I had never heard of before. I don't think it's very common. It's a cancer that causes benign tumors, which result in some bone loss. Mm. So it's more of a cavity in a bone than a growth. So it's a lot harder to detect, and it kind of overlaps with a lot of other bone ailments you might have, like osteoporosis and things like that. It has similar effects. It's benign. I think all of the time. So it's not really something you have to worry all that much about. And in humans, it mostly affects kids between ages five and 10. So it's a pretty small window that people get it. And I think they can live with it from what I gather. So Interesting. yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird problem. I think we talked about another one that was like this, that was mostly in our limb bones. And most people never know that they have it, but we see it in dinosaur bones when we CT scan them. So for the dinosaurs that have this, were they juveniles? The one that they showed, I think, was an adult. They had a scale bar on it, which was two meters, and it didn't reach the bottom of its chin. But we're talking about hadrosaurs, and they didn't say which hadrosaur it was. So if it was something like Admontosaurus scale. Right, then it probably was a juvenile. It could have been, yeah. It could but have also been an adult. Yeah, so I don't think they really knew. But they were looking at vertebra, so maybe they could figure it out by looking at the, if things were fused. I just, I don't think it was the focus of the paper. Yeah. What dinosaur? We always want to know. <laughs> well, I was thinking it'd be interesting if in humans we see this mostly when you're between the ages of five and 10, and is it the same for dinosaurs? Mm. Yeah, I think there's a good chance it was older than 10. Yeah, they'd still be growing around then. And it was likely, it was definitely larger. It wasn't five, I could tell you that much. But yeah, it's a good question. In the study, they actually looked at 11 hadrosaur tail vertebrae, and only two of them appeared to have LCH. They only looked at the centra, and I think that's because they didn't have a lot of the rest of the vertebrae to look at. <laughs> so you can't really identify anything with just a centra because it's just the round disc part of a vertebra. You might be able to get the group, but you're not going to figure out what specific species it is, let alone genus. And they found it in the Dinosaur Provincial Park Formation, which is between 75 and 76 million years ago. It's very well researched and well known. There's tons of stuff preserved there, including a lot of hadrosaurs like Carithosaurus, Gryposaurus, Lambiosaurus, and Parasaurolophus. So there's a lot of different animals this could have come from. Yeah, like we said, hard to guess the age then. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think these tumors really affected the life of the animal all that much. It probably would have affected the flexibility, I guess, of the tail, maybe caused some pain, but I don't think, but it's not like some paleopathologies, like a broken arm or leg or something where- it leads to their death. Yeah, exactly. And, where it's, and it's really impeding them. 
So even if it did catch it in the age range between five and 10, I don't know if it would look that much different than if it had got it as an adult, you know? So even if it's an adult now, I don't know if we'd be able to tell when it caught it. I don't know if you catch cancer, but (laughs) however it developed. (laughs) Yeah. So in order to confirm that this was in fact LCH, they compared it to human vertebrae that were known to have the conditions and put it through all the same scanners and everything, which basically meant micro CT scanners. And they made a 3D virtual version of the vertebrae, including the little abscess type thing inside the vertebrae where the tumor was. And they confirmed that the blood vessel patterns looked really similar. So they're pretty confident that it is LCH. And that makes it the first ever case of LCH, I think in a non-human period, but definitely in a dinosaur. So if you're a paleopathology fan, it's one more to add to the list. I mostly think it's interesting though, because it's something we have in common with dinosaurs. Yeah, it's definitely not as cringy as some of the other pathologies <laughs> we've heard about. Oh, I didn't really go into all of it. They they started talking about like onion comparisons and oh, things oh in there. No. And I thought it was a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> they brought up like every other type of paleopathology and why it wasn't those. Mm. And it was just like a laundry list of horrible things that can happen to bones. <laughs> well, non-pathology news. Got a quick update on the Utah Raptor Project. So the Utah Geological Survey packed up the 18,000-pound sandstone block that has multiple Utah Raptor. There's at least six of them and guanodon, at least two of those. Oh, wow. I didn't remember that. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of surprised that it still weighs 18,000 pounds. Hopefully, it's a little bit less by now if they've chipped off some of the sandstone. Maybe (laughs) 17,500. It's still big. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of dinosaurs in there. Yeah, they're going slowly, slow (laughs) and steady. Yep, that's good. You don't want to break anything. So they moved it, though, from the Museum of Ancient Life at Thanksgiving Point to the Department of Natural Resources, and that's to give scientists better access to the block. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I remember the reason they picked that museum was basically because they could fit an 18,000-pound block Mm -hmm. into the building and the floor wouldn't collapse. Yes. (laughs) So I guess they found another place. There you go. Maybe it's light enough now. <laughs> yeah. Or they they trimmed off enough of the sandstone that it's smaller and they can squeeze it through some door frames. Yeah. I'm glad we get these updates, though, and know that they're still working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait to see what they get out of it. There was also this uh, interesting article that Stacker published where they ranked all the states in the U.S. based on how many dinosaur fossils have been found. And that's based on the paleobiology database, PBDB. I use that all the time. It is great. Mm -hmm. It's a nice interactive map that lets you look at everything. Yes. But they stressed in the article that, quote, these records do not comprehensively reflect all dinosaur fossil records in the U.S., but rather represent a sample via the fossils available in public collections, end quote. It's also all the ones that have been published in papers. So I don't even think it's, right. they did say a sample of those in public collections, but really it's more like the ones that were significant enough to publish on. Right. And that someone had the time to do. (laughs) Yes. So going through the list, there were seven states that had no dinosaur fossils recorded by PBDB. (laughs) That was Kentucky, Iowa, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Wisconsin. But if you go through the list, a lot of the fossils are of birds, which count. They're dinosaurs. <laughs> and the top three states, 
because I thought it would be a little tedious to go through all 50. Smart. Yeah. I probably would have been tempted to go through all 50. I was tempted, <laughs> and then I realized how long that would take. Yeah. <laughs> so we're doing the top three. So you got Montana in third. They have 909 fossils, including 54 Tenontosaurus fossils. Wow. Wyoming's in second with 1,082 fossils, including 46 Triceratops fossils. And then I was really surprised that California is in first with 1,473 fossils. But again, this counts birds. 81 of them are of Phala crocorax, which is an aquatic bird. I think my fun fact next week is probably going to be going back to the paleobiota database and then restricting it to the Mesozoic. So it's not just birds. Right. Because I was going through, it's a gallery, so you have to click and then you see each state. And I remember thinking about three quarters of the way in, like, that's weird. I haven't seen California yet. Yeah. <laughs> it should have been one of the lowest states for sure. Yeah. I mean, we do have some because we get the ones that washed out to see, like we've got some hadrosaurs and chylosaur type stuff. We've got enough to have our own state dinosaur. Augustinolophus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they got the really cool ankylosaur at the San Diego Museum of Natural History also. Mm -hmm. But it's like the, the freak occurrence where they get washed out to sea. It's not like Montana where they're just there getting buried nonstop. Yeah. We should not have been ahead of Montana. Well, if you count birds, birds are dinosaurs. There I'm going to do go. a non-avian version of this next week. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I got to know. Good luck. <laughs> In Illinois, the Burpee Museum of Natural History's Paleofest is coming up March 6th to 8th. So really coming up. It's a 22nd annual event. It includes a symposium for students, speakers from all over the world, and a cocktail mixer and dinner. We know of at least one speaker, Matt Wadel, who will be speaking at the 10.30 a.m. talk on March 8th. And his talk is in the footsteps of giants finding and excavating new fossils of Brachiosaurus from the Lower Morrison Formation in Utah. Nice. Yeah, I would totally go if we lived nearby, but it's a ways. Yeah. But if you're near Chicago, or I think it's in Rockford specifically, then probably worth checking out. Let us know. In Alabama, Mobile celebrated Mardi Gras with a parade that included a velociraptor, and it's one of those realistic ones with the puppeteer inside. And the dinosaur is part of the nearby Gulf Coast Explorium Science Center's Dinosaurs Around the World exhibit. So their velociraptor in the parade had a handler and then people were petting it and taking pictures. <laughs> and this Dinosaurs Around the World exhibit's open from now until May 10th. They have got animatronics, fossils, and casts, and they showcase dinosaurs, including T-Rex, Velociraptor, and Amargosaurus. They have info on how the dinosaurs interacted with each other. Not specifically T-Rex and Velociraptor because they wouldn't have. But anyway, <laughs> uh, also how geology impacted them and then what continents were like when they lived. Nice. Now getting into film world, we'll start with Giant Screen Films, which recently released their film Dinosaurs of Antarctica. And that shows the forests and swamps that dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals lived in and how they survived the six months of darkness in the winter. And those sorts of things. So you can see it at giant screen and immersive theaters like IMAX around the world. But it sounds like it's mostly in museums right now. They said it's in more than 75 museum-based theaters. Cool. Yeah, Antarctica dinosaurs are some of the most interesting ones. Mm -hmm. Because we know so little about them. They're almost like how dinosaurs were in the early 1900s or something. Yeah. And also they lived in such extreme conditions. Yeah. 
especially yeah the darkness part it's good that they pointed out that side of it because the temperature wasn't all that bad relatively speaking to today yeah which is what most people think of with antarctica you forget that it's also pitch black <laughs> for yeah. half the year and then non-stop light for the other half how the year. did they cope with the depression <laughs> yeah and how did herbivores survive yes that too <laughs> so there's more film news. So Lucasfilm's launching Star Wars The High Republic, which is set 200 years before Star Wars The Phantom Menace. And they're going to have novels, children's books, and comics about it. And what does this have to do with dinosaurs? Well, they have a trailer and they have a whiteboard that says that they really want to include dinosaurs hmm. <laughs> in this new world. Well, new era. Though the speculation is that it'll be more like dinosaur-like creatures. Yeah, that's usually how it goes in sci-fi. You find this new world and there's just a big monster thing that looks kind of like a T-Rex, usually has bigger arms, <laughs> often more like crazy spikes and horns sticking out of its head just to make it look extra crazy. Yeah, or maybe it's an amalgamation of different dinosaurs yeah. or something. Yeah. I always like seeing what people come up with though. Mm -hmm. So we'll keep an eye out for that. And then last, and maybe what you were expecting when I said that there's dinosaur film news, <laughs> Jurassic World 3's subtitle we now know is Dominion. And Screen Rant has a list of things that they want to see in the movie. I don't know if that will actually happen, but, you know, we're already speculating because we're, what, a year and three months out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they want to have no more genetics for the sake of the story. They want more T-Rex scenes. And they want to see the movie take advantage of the environment. They want more forests, countryside, mountains, that sort of thing. I'm with them on two, maybe two out of three of those. Yeah. Well, they had other things too, but they didn't seem as dinosaur-centric. So. Yeah. I do not want more T-Rex scenes. No? Oh, I do. We've had five movies that have had tons of T-Rex. Let's get some Therizinosaurus, some Abelosaurids, less of the weirdies. Let's get the weirdies in there. Why can't we have them with the T-Rex? Nah. Nah. T-Rex, this is enough T-Rex. The T-Rex is kind of the hero. I know, but they've been the hero in enough movies. Let's well, get some other. They need to have at least an appearance because they've been in all of them. I don't know about that. Mm, I think so. Maybe just like a, a juvenile T-Rex, all covered in feathers. I could go for that. <laughs> mm. Really throw some controversy into the mix. Well, if anyone's paying attention to our Twitter, now you know which one of us wrote about this. <laughs> <laughs> the one who's really positive about it. About T-Rex scenes, yeah. <laughs> so does that mean that it's now officially named Jurassic World Dominion and not Jurassic World 3? I think so. I haven't found too much about it because we're still over a year away. Yeah. <laughs> It would be nice to have the real name because like we were calling it Jurassic World 2 for a super long time before we found out it was Fallen Kingdom. So Jurassic World Dominion. That sounds pretty good, I guess. It fits. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. 
Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Dicreosaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602. So thanks. It was a diplodocoid sauropod that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Tanzania in Tendaguru Hill. And it was about 39 feet or 12 meters long, which is small for a sauropod, but, you know, big for a dinosaur. (laughs) Dicreosaurus was estimated to weigh between 8,800 and 11,000 pounds or four to 5,000 kilograms, and that's around the same weight as an elephant. Dicreosaurus did not have a whiplash tail, like what diplodocids are known for, but it's a diplodocoid, so anyway. It did (laughs) not have as much pneumaticity in its vertebrae as other sauropods, such as Brachiosaurus, and pneumaticity means there's basically holes so that the bones are lighter. Yeah, that's what people sometimes refer to as hollow bones, Mm -hmm. which is... Not entirely what it is, but yeah, you get the picture. Yeah. Dicreosaurus replaced its teeth quickly around every 20 days for the premaxillary and rostral maxillary teeth and 50 days for the rostral dentary teeth. Dicreosaurus had a large head and a relatively short, wide neck. This neck had 12 short vertebrae. It was probably a low browser. That means it could eat food on the ground and leaves up to about 10 feet or 3 meters off of the ground. It had a double row of neural spines on its back, and spines on the vertebrae were Y-shaped, like a fork, and that's what led to its name. Yeah, you might be familiar with the Margosaurus, I think, is the more famous Dicreosaurid, because Dicreosaurus named the group <laughs> Dicreosaurids. It includes the Margosaurus with the same kind of spines going down in that Y-shape, I guess, or V-shape, mm-hmm. is what you see coming out of the skin, at least. Yeah. Pretty crazy. And in Dicreosaurus, these spines also had muscle attachment points. Oh, so maybe they weren't sticking out so much. Yeah, it's hard to say. 
The type species is Dicreosaurus hansemani, and that genus name means bifurcated or double-headed or two-forked lizard. So again, referencing its spines that are Y-shaped. Dicreosaurus was described in 1914 by Werner Genensch, and there's a second species, there's Dicreosaurus satleri. There's not a lot of information on the different species, but it looks like they're both named in 1914, and they may have been found in a 1909 excavation. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place include Giraffatitan and Kentrosaurus. These all ate vegetation at different heights, so that's why they could live together. Yeah, that's interesting. Giraffatitan, Kentrosaurus, and Dicreosaurus all together. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like in between the two, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's got the spines on its neck, sort of like a Kentrosaurus, but it's a sauropod, yeah. not as big as Giraffatitan. It's like if you mashed them together. <laughs> I guess so. And I was thinking there's always somebody eating something. Yeah, that too. You're always thinking about the eating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day is really the fun rabbit hole of the day for sure. Or Erichtodromius burrow. Yes. Or in this case, Overraptorid burrow, maybe. So anyway, the fact summarized is that dinosaurs, at least Overraptorids, had eggs in their nests that hatched sporadically, kind of like some modern birds, and not at all like modern crocodiles. So modern crocodiles are like sea turtles where they all pop out at once. But Overraptorids, it appears, had chicks popping up periodically. Hmm. So I have to get into this a little bit because it's a whole thing. (laughs) Some crocodilians can lay almost a hundred eggs at a time. Wow. Yeah. And they just bury them. And then a month or two later, they all hatch out at once. Like I was saying, just pretty similar to sea turtles. But birds are really diverse in the way that they raise their young. So some birds like albatross and emperor penguins just lay one egg and then raise it together you know they're and they're also like monogamous penguins and albatross it's very sweet mm-hmm. it's just like us so we and like lots them. of parental care <laughs> yes and obviously yeah because if you have the one egg you have to make sure that that one works some of them also lay two eggs and then whichever one hatches first is the one they keep and the other one's just kind of a spare and then they let the one that hatched first eat the other one if it hasn't hatched yet there's another strategy and then they'll go all the way up to like gray partridges which lay up to 20 eggs And they are hoping that some of them survive. It's kind of the other strategy. Unlike crocodiles, though, birds cannot lay 20 eggs at once. They can only lay at most one egg a day. So when they build a clutch of 20 eggs, it takes at least 20 days. They have to lay an egg and then wait a day and then lay another egg. And then they call it a clutch because it's one group of eggs that they're trying to raise at once. Not because it's so clutch that they can do that. Yeah, no. <laughs> I always thought before that it was a clutch because it was like a litter, you know, that you like laid them all at once, but that's not what it is. It's like a group you're trying to raise at once. And I should probably preference too that there are over 10,000 species of birds. So it's possible that some of these facts are like slightly off. Like maybe there's something that lays more eggs than a gray partridge, or there's some bird that can lay an egg once every 16 hours. So it's technically more than once a day. So Because of the way that clutches work, most of the time what birds will do is they'll lay their eggs and then they'll wait to incubate them until they have laid their full clutch. And the eggs basically don't start developing until they're being incubated. And that helps them all hatch around the same time. 
And you might be aware of this if you have chickens, because what chickens do is they usually lay about 12 eggs and then they'll sit on them and wait for them to hatch. But if you're raising chickens to eat their eggs, you take away an egg every day. So they never reach 12 eggs and they just keep laying eggs and laying eggs and laying eggs, hoping that they eventually get to 12 eggs that they can sit on. But yeah, that never happens if you're raising them. So it's kind of sad if you look at it that way. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. But I've also heard reports when I was reading about this and searching all about chicken raising to confirm these facts. Some chickens will lay 40 or 50 eggs and not sit on them because it's not the right like time of year. So they aren't in the mood to raise eggs and they'll just keep laying more and more eggs. And other chickens will lay like one or two eggs and then they'll become a brood hen, they call it, which is where they freak out and they're like, I'm raising this eggs. Everybody stay away from me. And they get super aggressive. So it's not always 12 eggs. Lots of other things can happen too. So even though a lot of birds will wait until they have their full clutch to start incubating, that's not always the case. And even if it is, there's usually some level of hatching asynchrony, it's called. And that just means that the eggs are hatching at different times. So, you know, they don't, if you're laying 20 eggs, even though they don't start developing much until you start incubating them the one that's laid 20 days before might start developing a little bit and then it'll hatch an hour or two maybe a day earlier the big question that the authors of a new paper were trying to answer was how about dinosaurs did they do crocodile like mass hatching or did they do bird like hatchings at different times and the paper that i'm talking about was published in integrative organismal biology and written by tr yang and others And what they did was they looked at a nest of three eggs, which was found together near Ganzhou, China. Weirdly, they were all different sizes. So the lengths were 145, 165, and 184 millimeters. So not all that close. That translates to 5.7, 6.5, and 7.2 inches. So they're ranging like two inches different in length practically. The widths ranged from 75, 74, and 82 millimeters or 3.0, 2.9, and 3.2 inches, so a lot closer. They assume that the 74 and 75 millimeter eggs may have been from the same mother hen. Basically, the hip width is what affects the width of the egg, and the length, I guess, is just way more variable, that they can be 20 millimeters different. (laughs) Seems strange to me, but I guess the width is the important thing. But they think the 82 millimeter width was probably from a different mother hen. So... Likely, what they say is that this was a communal nest, which means multiple parents in one nest. I never realized that's what a communal nest is. It's really obvious now that I'm looking at it that that's what a communal nest is. But what I always thought was that with communal nesting, it meant that they were all nesting in like a commune separately near each other. But that's actually called colonial nesting. That's where you have multiple different nests in an area. Communal nesting is literally there's a bunch of eggs from a bunch of different parents in one nest. Do they care which one hatches? So I think in a lot of these cases, it's that they're trying to raise all of them. Thus, like the commune sort of idea. Maybe it's like a large group of birds that are going to flock together and things like that. So they're not worried about just one being around. One example, I think, was ostriches, where there's one male ostrich and a bunch of female ostriches, and all the female ostriches will lay lay their eggs in the same sort of scrape mark, and then the male guards over all of them. So it's sort of like a lion pride situation, where they're all the parent 
that's guarding them, <laughs> you know? So it makes sense that the dad dinosaur wants to protect all the babies because they're all his babies. But if you left, you know, just one mom in charge, maybe she'd not want all of them to hatch or something. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Dave Vericchio previously had proposed that like some modern birds, oviraptorids might have been polygamous in this way with, you know, multiple mothers laying eggs and then the father dinosaur watching over all of them. And then other studies have shown that oviraptorid eggs in the same clutch had different chemistries, specifically phosphorus and some layers, indicating that the females laying them were different ages. I didn't realize that was something you could do, but they did it. <laughs> so that also indicates that this was probably a colonial nesting behavior that oviraptorids could do. But that still doesn't tell us if they were hatching at the same time or not, because potentially they could all just lay their eggs at the same day or you know, within a day or two, and then the father dinosaur could sit on the eggs and they'd all hatch around the same time. So in order to figure it out, they did some CT scans, and usually we use x-ray CT scans. In fact, I think that's the only type we've ever talked about before. That includes things like medical scanners all the way up to the super powerful synchrotrons that use x-rays. But these researchers instead used neutron CT scanners, which allowed them to see into the rock a little bit better and also separate the bones from the surrounding matrix because these embryo dinosaur bones in eggs are really hard to see. And we got lucky that they were actually in there. They weren't just empty eggs. But with their CT scans, they managed to measure some details of the dinosaur's development, and they found that they were at different stages. So some of them were more developed than others, which means that they were going to hatch asynchronously. The authors summarized it by saying they found that oviraptorids, quote, exhibited peculiar and unique nesting strategies that are not analogous to those of any modern animal, end quote. Weirdos. Yep. And that means that the original question of, is it a crocodile-like mass hatching or is it a bird-like asynchronous hatching in a nest? It's like neither. <laughs> it's a different thing. And they also included this cool little diagram showing some other birds and dinosaurs and how they hatch, which we'll have a link to the article. So you can check that out if you're interested. It's a little difficult to explain. But one last bonus fact I want to mention is that most bird species lay less eggs per clutch the farther they are from the equator. <laughs> they need the equator's warmth. Well, the exact reasons behind it are still debated. It's been, I think the main theory is that when they're farther from the equator, they have to put more energy into the eggs and there's less food available, or maybe that they're more likely to survive. I don't know. I, I said the most likely, but there's a whole bunch of likely reasons. So I don't know. It's weird. Birds are weird, but overraptorids are weirder. Yep. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And as Garrett mentioned before, consider becoming a patron. You'll get some cool art soon if you do. That's at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.